0: You are listening to The Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the screenwriter for Judas and the Black Messiah, Will Burson. I want to share something with you.
1: Like the masses, I was in awe when I first laid eyes on all the things you are. I heard that speech. I knew we'd make noise. I just thought it'd be in the streets. The Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to our national security. Our counterintelligence program must prevent the rise of a black messiah. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. What do you want? Get close to Hampton. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Neutralize him by any means necessary. America's on fire right now. And until that fire is extinguished, nothing else means a damn thing.
0: Imagine what we could accomplish together. We can heal this whole city. You ain't telling me it was going to be like this. These ain't no
1: terrorists. We got a rat, man. Does anybody else know about me? No one knows your identity. Are you sure? We educate. We nurture. We feed. And we lobby. Perhaps we're here for more than just war with these bodies. We scream. And we shout. And
0: we live. There's power
1: to the people really worked there. When I dedicated my life to the people, I dedicated my life. You get to go up there and talk about dying a revolutionary death because you don't have another person growing inside your body.
0: Anywhere there's people, there's power. Hey, Will, thank you so much for talking with me today about your film, Judas and the Black Messiah.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dana.
0: So, Will, you've been writing for years, but this is your first produced feature film. Uh, What brought you to this project?
1: Um, It's sort of a long story, but um, I I grew up in New York in the 80s um, under Rudy Giuliani and Bernard Goetz and Amadou Diallo and Abner Lima. Um, And I, you know, I was sort of had police police brutality kind of. omnipresent in my peripheral life. I'm white so it wasn't an existential threat to me. My parents are good aging hippies and I think when I was a kid they told me about Fred Hampton and his story, you know, stuck with me and haunted me and then, you know, by the, by the um, early teens, starting with Oscar Grant in 2009, cell phone videos were recording police killing unarmed black men, women and children, you know, basically once or twice a month it seemed like there was another one that was that was coming out um and by 2014 summer 2014 eric garner and mike brown were murdered um i think three weeks apart and mike brown's murder you know of course fomented the ferguson uprising and i think at that point i felt like hampton story was sort of had to be told and i started doing my research and started just writing a spec script in 2014 and 15 uh which was a little a little bit more like a traditional biopic kind of I don't know. I hope that answers your question.
0: It does. It does. And, you know, I love the framing that you did choose for the story that, that kind of focuses more on Bill O'Neill, the, the titular Judas. Mm-hmm. So why did you move away from the standard biopic of Fred Hampton and towards the f- framing the story through Bill O'Neill's eyes?
1: So that was, that was all um, Shaka and Lucas Brothers, and I, I had written a spec script, and because, because the story's so horrible and because Fred Hampton is so funny, I kind of thought, uh, you know, possibly getting a comedian who could act would be um, a good choice. You know, not not comic relief in a glib way, but like a little bit of a sort of emotional reprieve from how horrible everything is. And mm-hmm. also, I had a lot of speeches in my early drafts, and I kind of felt like they could and should have the energy of Chris Rock's Bring the Pain or Eddie Murphy's Delirious or something. So I gave my script to Jermaine Fowler, who uh, plays Mark Clark and Judas, um, to consider for Hampton. I knew I used to teach him perform at UCB, and I had mutual friends. Um, and unbeknownst to me, he gave the script to Shaka because he knew Shaka and the Lucas brothers were working on their own outline for a story that was more about O'Neill and Hampton. And so Shaka got my script, wanted to meet me. He sat down and said, "Look, I want to I want to marry your script and our structure." And and when he you know when he said I want to do it about O'Neill, I was like, "Can can we center the rat like that? Is that okay? Will mm-hmm. will anyone forgive us?" But he totally sold me on it as a way to sort of Trojan horse uh, the more traditional biopic. Um, you know, and I, I hope I had written something that was slightly better than a like lifetime movie biopic. You know, there was a little more interesting than that. Yeah. Um, I sort of what I kept thinking I wanted to be Julian Schnabel meets Michael Mann was sort of my hmm. my aesthetic organizing principle as I was writing. But certainly, um, and and in my version, it was sort of the cat and mouse was Hampton and, and Edgar Hoover. Um, O'Neill was in my script, but he wasn't a big character. But as Shaka explained it, I think it, it was so so much more dynamic uh, because of the sort of mutual. Manipulation going on in the in the the three or even four pairs of relationship. There's there's Fred and O'Neill, O'Neill and Mitchell, um, and even Mitchell and and Hoover and sort of who's manipulating whom and how. And the idea of having O'Neill be both a victimizer and a victim, I think, is really mm. is really important in in further um, sort of depicting the extent of the state's um, oppression and kind of the destruction of humanity of of the collaborators which isn't to say we wanted to make him sympathetic but simply that it was a it was another a totally other um angle of the state apparatus and i think it was you know brilliant to embody it that way
0: yeah that's that's brilliant and because this project is so deeply steeped in historical fact tell tell me about your research process i imagine it, it was pretty extensive
1: it, so my mom is a retired high school librarian and i think she i think she kind of beat good research skills into me when i was in high school and i'm a writer so i'm lazy which means if i have an idea and i order 200 dollars worth of used books and spend 4 months or 5 months reading i can tell myself i'm working but i'm not actually <laughs> writing uh which is you know very reassuring um so yeah i bought every book i could and i got on jstor and got academic articles and newspaper articles and i went on proquest and i Read dissertations. I even got a couple of master's theses that seemed interesting. Um, and the the sort of crazy thing is there there has not been a lot written about Fred. There's no definitive hmm. biography. Uh, the the efforts to vilify and then and then sort of erase him have been pretty successful. Um, but I you know I did read everything I get my hands on, um, and and spent you know months and months and months buying used books and and ordering dissertations from ProQuest and. Going over it all with a fine tooth comb, oh. um, and I, I, you'd have to talk to Shock and Lucas Brothers about sort of what what their research process was like. I don't actually know sure. what that entailed for them, but that that was sort of how I, how I got into my script. And you know, there's a ton written about Hoover, and a lot written about Cone and very little written about Fred Hampton and mm. the Chicago Panthers. Um, well. You know, a lot of a lot about Huey Newton and Seal, and I think part of that is because, uh, and, and no disrespect to Newton, who was an amazing radical revolutionary, but he. He was a, uh, you know, a, a womanizer and and a drug fiend, and I think that he he is easy for the state to uh, document and kind of vilify, and I think that's that's sort of part of the reason it's more acceptable that there's there's more Huey Newton scholarship about there than there is for Hampton because because he still ultimately succumbed to you know the the trope of of, of American imperial racism of of being a junkie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to EvergreenPodcast.com/slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Gary Chachot, welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. Learn what you love and listen to the French History podcast today. I saw that Fred Hampton Jr and Mother Akua were were credited as cultural experts on the project. Did they contribute at all to your process as you developed the script? They
1: they they didn't. They um not certainly not my original script. And once Shaka came on board, there was and you'd have to talk to Shaka or Ryan or Charles. They had several trips to Chicago, sort of courting, trying to you know reaching out to Fred Hampton Jr. and Akua Najiri. I, I sort of I finally went out um, in fall of nineteen, October twenty nineteen. I think I went out and met them for the first time. Um, uh, but they were on set. Fred Hampton Jr. was on set almost every day, I think, mm. and and Mother Akua came for quite quite a long time, and they and they would they were invaluable in terms of sort of you know, they were in Video Village and they were watching stuff and mm. um, you know, there was there was a lot. And again, I think Shaka would be able to answer I was I was only on set the final two weeks, um, so Shaka would be able to speak much more to specifics about um Fred Junior's Fred Henry Junior's involvement, but he was heavily involved in, in, in actual filming and production. And, and and the movie's the better for it, certainly.
0: Yeah and and with this being your your first produced uh feature what- what was it like seeing it come to life like this
1: it was i mean it was amazing it was the, easily the best creative experience of my life mm. um uh i you know i love t v um really t v writers have a little more um uh, creative control mm. i uh and i and i love the the collaboration of of a writer's room but um yeah, I you know, I, I showed up, my first dance set was a was a night shoot in an abandoned, unheated church in Cleveland in in late December. Um, half the crew was wearing snowsuits and it was amazing. It was, you know, again this was the this was the final two weeks of a pretty grueling shoot, but I could tell everybody was there because they cared about the story and they wa- they they were, you know, wanted to honor Fred Hampton and what and what he meant and what he still means. Um and that was so um invigorating and heartening and and just really special, like i've never
0: hmm.
1: you know I don't think I've ever worked on anything that was so kind of um substantively meaningful to everyone like during the process itself, and so many people came up to me and said, you know expect how proud they were just to be working on it um so that was it was it was amazing um and I, you know i don't again the the first three quarters of the shoot I have no idea, but the as far as I could tell the it was kind of a miraculous shoot where everybody was. Supportive and mm. and loving and it, I, you know I think I think product, what what I saw as a as a kind of outsider in Video Village all looked like it went really smoothly and was collaborative, respectful and, and just beautiful. Like Sean Bobbitt, you know, shot the shit out of this mm-hmm. and it's just it's all gorgeous and all you know all the designers, obviously uh, Charlize mm. Antoinette with with the costumes and it's just you know it's just a stunning movie. So it was it was amazing.
0: Yeah, I couldn't awesome. ask for a better first produced feature. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, well, I'm excited to see more from you. Uh, do you have any other any other projects in the works that you can tell us
1: about? Um, I am trying to finish a, a spec sci fi feature that I had hoped to be ready to go out with when the movie came out, which I'm probably not quite gonna make that. But I am. Yeah, I'm shopping around a couple a couple pilots, a mini series about the Second Seminole War, hmm. which was in the 1830s when the Seminole Indians and um, a bunch of marooned and and runaway enslaved people who were living with them um fought off andrew jackson's u s army mm. successfully for seven years, which is an incredible story
0: yeah
1: um, also I think it's it's pushing a, a boulder uphill a little bit because it's a predominantly native and black cast and mm-hmm. it's going to be incredibly expensive but I'm hopeful about that yeah. um, and then I'm shopping around a, a pilot uh sort of i think very timely based on kind of on the oath keepers and the constitutional sheriff's movement um, mm. it's, you know it's fictionalized, but it's about a um uh, a sheriff in in eastern Oregon and her her husband who runs a local anti-government militia, mm-hmm. and sort of they're getting caught up in a in one kind of murder case and and the sort of greater governmental forces and and who their real enemies are and what it means to be American. Wow. So um, very dense stuff all around. Yeah. No, that sounds <laughs> <like> awesome. Nobody. <laughs> Okay, I I I think so, but I don't you know I don't know if Hollywood will feel that way. We'll find out.
0: That's amazing. Well, well, uh, Judas was one of my favorite films of the year. I'm uh, so excited to see more from you, uh, and I
1: appreciate your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Me too. Thank you so much, Daniel.
0: Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the screenwriter for Judas and the Black Messiah, Will Burson, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Judas and the Black Messiah is currently streaming on HBO Max and playing in select theaters from Warner Brothers Pictures. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you're feeling generous, head on over to Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a comment, let us know what you think of the show, rate us five stars. And if you want to take that generosity a step further, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, and we shall see you all next time. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon!